So Jeff Bennett is in the house. Thanks for being here, brother. Good to see you. As almost everybody watching knows, Jeff Bennett and I are business partners and we run a real estate investment firm called Studio 168. Loving the hat, love the representation. Thank you. Reason behind the number 168, when we do conferences, we'll often ask folks, how many weeks in a year? Numbers 52 people know that answer. How many days in a month? 28, 30, 31, et cetera. Easy answers. We, we ask, how many hours in a week? Crickets. So then we decided to name our, our company Studio 168 to help people live their life by design, not by default, utilizing the power of real estate investing so that people can have wealth, which is freedom. If you really think about it, what wealth is, it's freedom. Freedom to do what you want with whom you want as often as you want. And we help people achieve that via real estate investments to acquire cash flow, appreciation, depreciation, so forth and so on. So you've been doing real estate for a long time. When did you get started in real estate? What year? So I was back in 2006. So many people get into real estate, you know, through different ways. Um, people go to school, people invest. Uh, I got in through an opportunity. I mean, I got back from an LDS mission. My mission president was big into real estate. Uh, his company came and approached me the same time that others were doing summer sales, knocking doors and said, come out to Denver, Colorado and do uh, commercial real estate for us. Uh, I was actually selling mobile homes at the time. And I knew nothing about Denver, Colorado. I knew nothing about mobile homes, but I felt that urge to take an opportunity. I'm really big on opportunities. So I took that opportunity. I packed up my car. I drove to Denver, Colorado. I got there at like 1 a.m. And I remember it was my first time actually being in a mobile home park other than my mission. And I drove through and it was pitch black. I got to my double wide and I opened the door and it was empty. And so you know, my first night getting into commercial real estate, I literally was sleeping on the floor. Oh, so empty meaning no furniture? No furniture. Okay. But that was where you're supposed to reside as yeah, you were doing this job. That's right. Did they forget to put the furniture in? Or I guess they forgot the to the put lamp? the furniture in, you know. <laughs> A few days later, they came in and they brought some things, but um, that's how I got in. And I was a sales manager and we sold a bunch of mobile homes that first uh, three months and and were very successful. And then I took another opportunity, went to California and then another opportunity running a portfolio here in Utah all over the country. And then another opportunity to start a business with you. You've been a, a great partner and mentor to me for many, many years. So it's an honor and privilege to be here with you. Um, but it's just been one opportunity after the next. And what you do with those opportunities compounds and creates uh, you know, lasting opportunities and growth. Okay. So at what point, thanks for sharing that. I didn't know about the empty mobile. Were you almost like, I'm not doing this when you got into that uh, I empty was, double wide? Yeah, I was definitely shocked. And I was like, what am I doing here, man? You did, know? did Were you tempted at all to like get back in your car at 1am and head back home? No, no, I was pretty committed. Obviously drove six, seven hours, whatever it is to Denver. And you know, I really wanted to, to see how it went well what's interesting is you know when i started at vivin it was called apx back then and we had this apartment in arizona where we learned how to sell home security systems and i think there was a bed or two in that apartment but there was like 20 of us so we were on on the carpet or in air on air mattresses sleeping and we we're just trying to learn the the name of the game we were trying to learn the trade yeah. And I, I think there's something to be said with these quote unquote humble beginnings that really create the opportunities for you. 
because when you have abundance of resources, you get fat and happy. You know, I think for you, same thing for me is when you don't have all the luxuries, you're like, I need to make something happen here because I don't, I don't want this to be the, the status quo. So I think there's beauty in, in what you went through and what I went through because you start stacking on top of those difficult moments or those not very elegant moments. Yeah, for, it forces you to be resourceful. You know what I mean? Like you have to go out and actually create opportunities and you have to create. I mean, we were we were doing things that nobody was doing in mobile homes back then. We were literally flyering apartment complexes like door-to-door oh, sales. To, to bring people in? Yeah. That's how we were generating leads and then we were putting ads, you know, in the paper and just doing very resourceful things to bring in leads. And we were very successful at the time. There was uh, sales managers they'd sent to Idaho, to California, to Texas and other States that literally didn't sell a home. And that's what was really unique for us is we just had to, we had to learn from the ground up how to create leads and how to sell homes. Now, when you went into this community in Denver, was it just you that was selling or was there a team? So I was the sales manager. It was me. Oh. And then I brought three other people with Hold me. Hold on. So you're, and first time at the job. So you're managing people yeah. without ever having done it yourself. That's right. So why did they make you a sales manager when you had never done it before? It was a relationship. You know, I had a relationship with the founder and the owner of the company. He had high trust in me as a leader okay. and uh, being able to, you know, kind of start from Wait, the ground up. Hey, listen, where it's, you know, you and I talk about it all the time, but the chokehold of a business, it's the psychology of the business leadership. So obviously your founder saw the leadership already. You know, it's first who, what's the psychology, who, then what? Yeah. So I'm sure he saw the foresight that he saw you in previous experiences. You didn't need to be a sales manager in that asset class. You had the leadership, you had the trust, you had the, you were the who, and then let's go figure out the what. That's right. I, I'm sure at some point in time, because I know you, that you are enamored with real estate. It's like your passion. You'd rather, you love fishing in real estate. You'd <laughs> rather be... Searching for deals than being on a jet ski in Lake Powell. I know that about you. So at what point in time did you fall in love with this business that you're in? Well, I think it's, you know, as you have wins, as you succeed in whatever the task that you're doing, hitting goals and targets. I've, I've kind of obsessed about that for my whole life. You know, I started rock climbing when I was in junior high school. And believe it or not, rock climbing taught me how to obsess over a target and how to visualize actually doing it first and then trying over and over and over again with lots of failure to accomplish that thing. And so with real estate, it was the same type of thing. You know, I, I started doing it and we started holding meetings and we started having success with selling homes. And then I started having success with filling communities. Um, and then I started having success with apartments and, and so on and so forth. And that's just one thing after the, the next. It's almost addicting to me. Um, I obsess over accomplishing those things and hitting targets and, and uh, creating new things. There, I, I have an obsession about taking real estate specifically and transforming it into a new type of real estate. And that's what you and I you know, have done big time with, with Studio 168. We buy Class C apartments and we convert them to Class B. You know, we buy mobile home parks that are empty or have a lot of, of empty pads and we infill them. Um, and so those are the types of things that, you know, I'm really passionate about. Okay. So maybe talk about, you know, a lot of viewers probably don't understand the different classifications. So 
How do apartment complexes rank? You have your A, B, maybe expand on that a little bit. Yeah, so there's different ways to obviously rank them. We use a platform called CoStar. You know, we pay for their business platform and, and they provide a ton of data to us. And we can see, you know, just through that platform, a two star and a three star and, you know, class A, class B, all that kind of stuff. But generally speaking, usually location plays a role. You know, a class A is gonna be a phenomenal location, downtown Salt Lake City. Um, a lot of times it's the the year that it was built, you know, it was built after a certain date or maybe it's new construction. Um, maybe it's uh, pitched roofs. It has parking. It has covered parking. Um, it has amenities, uh, has pools, you know, gym, those types of things. Um, so we're usually buying the opportunistic blue collar workforce housing. We're going after the stuff that is in great locations. Um, sometimes it may be a secondary location. Sometimes it's in the best location you can find in Dallas, Texas. But we're buying stuff that's a little bit older in some cases that needs, uh, you know, upgrades of, of the inside of the unit. So there's tenants that are living there that are really sticky. They're paying rent, but their unit hasn't been remodeled in 20 plus years. So that's what we're doing is we're coming in, we're putting CapEx, we're repositioning it. We're increasing the rents and, uh, you know, creating a longer lasting customer that way. And then, so you said you, you love seeing those targets being hit, et cetera. So do you, are you more passionate about the infill? You're more passionate about taking it from a class C to a B, or is it just all in the same? How do, how, how do you, how do you view that passion? Yeah, it's the same thing. And, you know, doing this for 18 years, there's nothing like being in the field, walking the community, walking with the residents, walking with the on-site manager um, and seeing it firsthand and experiencing it. And that's what gets me so jacked and so excited about real estate is going through a community that, you know, six months ago, the tenants were pissed off. There was potholes everywhere. There was dilapidated uh, office. There was no amenities for their kids to play. And we come in and we add those things um, and we get to see that and fill it with the residents. Um, and then at the same time, you're producing phenomenal returns. Uh, so it really becomes a win-win, a win-win for an investor. It, it, and a it's, what's interesting is you mentioned the value creation for the residents and for the on-site staff before you talked about the returns. Yeah. And we talk about it all the time. Dollars follow value, not the other way around. I think some operators or some people getting into this asset class, all they care about is the quote unquote bottom line, but you can't have a bottom line unless you're taking care of the customer, which is number one, your employees. You're never going to have a happier end user or happier customer than your employees. That's right. So I know we work really hard to make sure that our employees are super ecstatic to do the job. Um, we live in a culture where we allow mistakes to happen so that people can bring their authentic true self and they don't feel like they're robots or cyborgs so that they can bring their very best. We also believe in allowing people to belong instead of fitting in because we want, we want diversity of skill set. We want people to come in with their very best and also with their quirks so that they can come in and, and be part of this holistic program that we're running. Now, let's talk about return profiles. Why multifamily versus single family for you. I know there's folks tuning in that have SFRs. They love the Airbnb strategy, which is fine. But why have you chosen specifically the multifamily asset class, namely in manufactured housing communities and multifamily apartment complexes? 
Well, first, I always think about who the end buyer is with any real estate that we buy. So I've sourced many, many deals over the years, 100 plus different assets, thousands of doors. And I always think first, okay, what's the exit? If I exit out of this thing five years, 15 years, 30 years from now, who's the buyer? Who's the end buyer? And with an Airbnb and a single family home, your end buyer is usually the direct consumer. And that generally speaking in commercial real estate is not the lowest cost of capital. The lowest cost of capital in private equity, venture capital, commercial real estate is an institution. It's a pension fund. It's you know a, a giant Apollo Blackstone type private equity group. And so that's why we're buying scale. Those groups don't come and buy one home. Now you might put a portfolio of single family units together of a thousand homes over time and sell that to a group like BlackRock. But more realistically, we buy a hundred doors at a time. We buy a 200 unit complex because I can sell that to many, many different REITs or institutions. They're going to pay the lowest cap rate and the lowest, uh, the lowest cost of capital um, they have the lowest cost of capital. Okay. You just mentioned, thanks for that explanation. That's super helpful. So you just talked, mentioned cap rate. What's a cap rate and how, I guess to follow on. So it's a two part question. What's a cap rate. And then how does multifamily trade in comparison to SFRs? Yeah. So a, a cap rate, I guess the best way to understand it, the most simple way to understand it is it's your first year yield on your purchase price. So if I buy an asset for, let's call it a million dollars, I'm going to get $50,000 of net operating income and unlevered yield. Um, that would be a 5% cap rate. I'm getting a 5% return year one. That's the, that's what a cap rate is. So another, another explanation would be net operating income divided yep. by purchase price. A hundred percent. That's, that's how we, how, how we work the numbers. Okay. That's right. And then difference between multifamily and single family. How do well, they? Well, single family. So let, let's say this 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 place that I'm in right now. How, how would this trade in comparison to? A, does it trade on a cap rate? No, generally it doesn't trade on a cap rate. People are going to pull up Zillow. They're going to see what the market is. They're going to say, you know, your square foot square feet is trading for two hundred and twenty dollars a square foot in this neighborhood. Whatever it is, and you're going to get an appraisal, and that appraisal is specifically going to focus on the direct consumers, families that are living in homes and buying those homes, uh, which is very different than commercial real estate. Commercial real estate, they're gonna trade on a cap rate because it's strictly for an investment. It's a business. It's a business. We're not buying an apartment complex or a mobile home park to live in it. We're buying it as a business to produce cash flow strictly and appreciation. So uh, an appraiser on a mobile home park or an apartment complex is going to compare sales it's going to compare your they're going to take your income statement and actually look at what your noi is and say cap rates for this type of class b your class c your three star whatever it is is trading at a five cap or a six cap and that's what the market value is versus uh sfr in a neighborhood where your neighbor chose to fire sell now you kind of get penalized for that fire sale. That's right. Or you kind of get penalized if they became encumbered and had, had they went on default and had to foreclose. Because now your comps will pull that foreclosure in your neighborhood. So it really affects you. So what I like about commercial real estate is you get rewarded for your own business, not necessarily what's happening amongst your peers. 
Sure, there's some comparables on CoStar that you can find, but at the end of the day, you're going to get rewarded for how well you run your business on a factor of net operating income, which is reducing your expenses and increasing your revenue. Well, in case in point for that, we can buy one apartment complex or mobile home park or self-storage facility that is well-ran, it's institutional quality, it has high NOI, and it trades for a really low cap rate. Mm -hmm. That's right across the street from a mom and pop that's not well ran that isn't going to trade at a. So it's a good anchor and something that you can look forward to to be able to get that trade later down the road. Exactly. Whereas in your neighborhood, you know, if a bunch of people come in and build really low quality, really small houses, it really affects your house value. Yeah, makes sense. So what's a good, you know, when you're doing your underwriting and when you're doing your deal sourcing, what's a good cap rate in today's environment? Obviously, the higher cap rate on the purchase, the better. The lower the cap rate on the sell side, the better. Um, you but know. hold on. There might be a threshold, though. If your cap rate's too high, you might be buying some garbage you don't want to deal with, right? Yeah. we. I mean, we've been doing this for, for quite some time. And usually, if it seems too good to be true, it, it is. is too good to be true. So if you find something that's a 15 cap rate in today's market, is that... Are you kind of nervous about that one? It's always blinking red lights. Okay. 15 caps, especially on institutional quality assets, don't really exist. Yeah, it doesn't exist. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of mystery meat in that sausage, more than likely, right? Yeah, when you pick a deal like that apart, because we've done this, we've met with groups that have presented us deals and said, hey, we can do a 12 cap or a 15 cap, or I can get you a 20% cash on cash out of the gate. And then you go and you look at the deal and the financials and you realize, well, they don't even have on-site management in their in their performa. They don't have property taxes. They don't have insurance. They don't have any vacancy factor. They don't have, I mean, it's the most aggressive model you've ever seen. And they don't put in any reserves and any CapEx and all that kind of stuff. And so, yes, m- most of the time, if it's a high, high cap rate, if you're hitting double digits, usually it's too good to be you're, true. You're, or you're paying for it at some point in time. That's right. Or they underwrote it so aggressively that when you do your conservative underwriting, it just won't pencil. It turns into a, I don't know, a five cap, four cap, who knows? Exactly. So what's a healthy cap rate? A healthy cap rate is really, uh, it's usually in line with interest rates, quite frankly. Um, So obviously in the COVID era, we saw extremely low interest rates, zero interest rates. Um, and so you saw kind of a, a I guess, a, a fudged market, if you will, where everybody was paying three and a half, four cap rates for even like secondary markets and tertiary markets and, you know, two and a half star quality type assets. Um, so sellers were so, loving it. So Yeah. So sellers were loving it. So I guess the point that I'm trying to explain there is there is a point where no matter what the interest rate is, it shouldn't go below. Got it. And so that threshold is usually around a five cap, um, unless it's extremely high quality and like, you know, phenomenal market. But generally you, you, you don't want to see your cap rate go below a five. Okay. And that's where you should anticipate your exit cap to be generally on a lot of assets. And sometimes it's more and sometimes maybe slightly less, but a good cap rate for us with interest rates where they're at, if they're at, seven percent right now we're trying to buy a first year cap rate around a seven percent so we're not negatively leveraged if you buy an asset at a lower cap rate than your interest rate then it erodes your cash flow and your return so let's talk about um 
you just mentioned debt and interest rates, et cetera. What's a good ratio to have between debt and equity? So institutions, the institutional capital out there for debt, Fannie and Freddie, that's the creme de la creme. That's maybe, the best may, and maybe explain get. those two institutions. Who are they and how do you they're have access to that? They're government-backed debt. So essentially they're you know trading bonds and it's the safest debt you can get. It's non-recourse. Um, and they underwrite the asset and make sure the asset's performing and th they're not extremely aggressive with leverage and those types of things. So Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac government backed agencies, they, uh, they underwrite the operator and they want to make sure that the operator and the asset are going to stand on its own two legs. Because if anything goes wrong with the performance, theoretically, you hand over the keys and you walk away from the asset. Now, if you got a regional bank, they've got your balance sheet, they've got all your personal stuff tied up. So if the asset goes bad, they're coming after all of your personal assets. So very different there. And that's why they're very conservative. And generally speaking, they're not going to loan more than 65 to 75% on the debt side. Yep. So just so that folks understand what kind of ratio between debt and equity do we like to have at studio? What's well, our guiding principle? We're, we're about 50% equity, 50% debt. That's really safe. There's good equity there to get good cash flow and you're not over levered. You know, a lot of people uh, will get over levered on deals and especially when banks are really bullish and they'll get 80%, 90%. And then what you see is what we're finding is opportunities to buy because they've gotten over levered. They have tons of negative cash flow and they find themselves having to sell and get out of that asset. So we stick with a 50-50, generally speaking, out the gate. And that's because we're putting in a lot of extra equity for CapEx and things. For CapEx, make operational reserves, insurance, vacancy loss, whatever the case might be, that rainy day fund, which I think is brilliant. Not I think, I know it's brilliant. Um, well, and, and, and let me just say on the, on the reserves there, you know, that's one thing that we've taken very seriously. Like we have told our investors, our partners, really our partners, our friends and family, we will never do a capital call. Sure. And the way that you do that is you make sure that you're fully funded from the beginning. From the we, we see groups getting bridge debt in order to do their CapEx. That's risky. What we do is we call all the equity for all the CapEx. And then on the reserves, we usually do three on a minimum and upwards of six months of all of your expenses month by month, including debt. And that gives you really, really uh, conservative reserves. Okay. And then what I love too is just the bifurcation of those different buckets saying this is solely for CapEx. Nobody can touch this unless it's utilized for CapEx. This is solely for operational reserves or rainy day funds. This cannot go below this line. We use the terms hell high water. So that way everybody stays in a systematic, you know, fashion where they're not, you know, pulling from different pools which exactly. can really muddy the waters. And then the other thing that I love a best practice is the closing of the books on a monthly through a third party agency to make sure that the team is running everything, you know, appropriately. Yeah. When time decreases, what happens with intensity? It increases. 100%. So we have a lot of shops doing is in the month of November, December, they go crazy because they got to do all their final closes so that they can get their taxes ready and their reporting ready. And you find all those mistakes, but it's it's too little too late. 
Yeah. You want to anticipate like crazy. If not, it snowballs in, in, in a wrong way. It, it, exactly right. And it's not just for making sure that the books are 100% accurate on a monthly basis so that we can get our K1s out on time. Because that's another guiding principle. We don't believe in serving out K1s on in September or October. Sure. You know, Super frustrating. Super frustrating. So it's not just for that, but it's also cash management, right? Um, one thing that is really important, especially as people get into commercial real estate, is you know a lot of people used to keep cash books on accounting. Nowadays, almost everybody's doing accrual, which is essentially what you charge a tenant for the month and then your expenses and, and when you accrue for all that stuff. Well, what people don't talk a lot about is how that affects bad debt and what happens with the balance sheet. So essentially what, what we see a lot is we see groups get into trouble because they think that they're collecting, let's mm. call it a hundred grand a month because they're charging that. And they're assuming that. And if you let that go for the whole year, but it doesn't come in, but it's not coming in. It's yeah. actually just hitting the, the, the balance sheet and they're not accruing that, for it on their income. Statement. Listen, that's why I always say profit is theory and cash flow is king because you think that because you charge that it came in on your accounts receivable, Yep. your accounts payable. It's like funny, like pay, 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 pay. And people don't pay attention to the accounts receivable piece. And if you don't do that cash accrual and that cash management, you're toast. That's right. And if you don't do it rapidly, like you don't have time to like figure it out. That's why, that's why that, that principle right there, if anybody can like take one big takeaway, it's that it's cash management. That's right. It's making sure that your accounts receivable are as low as possible. They're literally at zero where you're getting all your collections in. Well, and we, we accrue for our bad debt a hundred percent every month. That way it really smooths out cash flow. We that way you know exactly what you have. That's, that's how you manage the cash. That's yeah, because right. some shops will push that bad debt forward or they'll oh, yeah. account for it three months in, four months in. And it's then they look back and like, oh, my gosh, where did we go wrong? They wonder why their bank account keeps dipping and going lower and lower. And that's another thing that we really look at is we have bank account minimums, liquidity minimum that we internally manage. And we say our reserve account can't go below you know 300 grand or 400 grand, whatever it is. But our CapEx account also has to have a minimum of 100 grand or 150,000. And that's bucks. why the bifurcation of the different accounts is so key. Yep. Okay, now let's talk about the different levers of real estate. So we talked a lot about single family versus multifamily. The other thing that I'll add is scale matters, the multiplier effect matters. So for instance, if if I have a single family, have one resident move out, the tenant, I'm at 100% vacancy. That pretty much gobbles up my cash on cash for the year. Like one month of vacancy, that could be my my net profit's gone for the year. You know, multifamily, if I have a 100 unit, I can have 10 people move out. I'm still at 90% occupancy. So I can withstand the test of a vacancy at a much higher rate. Plus on expenses with my GNA, my general administrative, and also my, my variables, if I have an HVAC issue, I can spread that cost amongst 100 doors, 300 doors versus one door, two doors, three doors, four doors where you can't withstand those expenses, right? Yep. So that, that's a key there. So there's the multiplier effect, there's appreciation, depreciation, there's cash flow, all that stuff. So maybe let's, let's talk about appreciation for a minute. How does appreciation work in multifamily? And why is it quite often overlooked by investors? You know, some, I mean, there's a lot of investments out there, right? There's commercial real estate, but then there's venture capital, there's private equity, there's oil and gas, there's tons of different investments and they all pay out differently and they all have different benefits and, and different risks and all that kind of stuff. So we, we consider commercial real estate 
uh, the focus is risk adjusted returns, right? And so with appreciation, um, that's, that's really important right now. People are putting money into bonds and different things and there may, they may be clipping off 4% or 5%, which is great. And you have sometimes liquidity. even higher, yeah. sometimes even higher, but you're not getting appreciation. Yeah. There's and no long-term love there. There's no long-term love. And so you, you often say this, you know, you don't wait to buy real estate, you buy real estate and you wait. And that's a really, really important principle because when you look at people that are very, very successful in real estate, they've usually been doing or their family's been doing it for 40, 50 years, sometimes multi-generations. Sure. And what happens is you buy an asset and over long periods of time, especially through inflationary periods like we've just dealt with, what happens, your rents go up. And then uh, you don't see your rents come all the way back down in a recession. They may come down a little bit and vacancy the, might increase a little bit, but you have a new benchmark. Plus that also depends on class A, class B, class C. Yeah. But we'll get into that, but keep going. Yeah. So the appreciation, the most important thing is buying your equity on the purchase. You so, know? so how does one do that? Give me an example of that. It's all about your basis. So one thing that... And that, maybe we can talk about Amarillo. It's, yeah. it's a live, it's a live asset that, that we just put under contract. So that's, talk, that's right. So the, a, a deal that we're, uh, we're sourcing right now, it's in, it's in Amarillo, Texas. We really like the market. It, um, we like the seller. We bought an asset off this exact seller. Um, he's a high net worth individual. He's not an operator. He hired a third party management company. There's a reason why, uh, you know, fully integrated property management and asset management is what institutions look for. You know, pension funds aren't going to go and just hire a third party property management company. They want a fully integrated shop. And the reason why is because of alignment. And it's, a, it's, it's all about your, your core capabilities and your controls and your controls. So with Amarillo, you know, the guy that owns this, he hired a third party management company. What, what's happened? Well, they didn't raise rents through all of COVID. And why is that? Because they don't care. They're not compensated on raising the rents. They don't, they're not compensated on cash flow. The what, third party management company is, but obviously the owner is. Yeah. So they're compensated on what usually? Usually they're, they're compensated on the gross revenue and then they're compensated on almost creating turnover. They get half or 50 to a hundred percent of the first month moving uh, rent from that tenant. And so what happens? They actually want to kick out they 10 tenants over. this month because if they lease out 10 units, now they get, you know, they probably make more than their, their property management fee doing that. And I think the other thing too is they get compensated with little to no noise. So if you raise rents, that might create noise that they don't want to deal with because they don't have the capabilities or the wherewithal. Yeah. Even though it's, it's what should be done to be able to keep the assets lively, right? Yeah. Um, but you, you're absolutely right. So if they get compensated with those first deposits, they're going to look for first deposits. How do you get first deposits by people moving out and new people coming in and bringing that's in right. new deposits? And, and, and that's a big cost. That's the thing to the owner of the property, but that's not to the property management, not firm. to the property and property management's loving it. But yeah. to the owner, every unit that turns over, he's having to clean it. He's having to, or she's having to fix it up yeah. and spend money to make money. Okay. Right. Okay. So, appreciation. So real estate goes up in value over time. The best investment on earth is earth. They're not making more of it. Buy more earth. Just so happen to buy earth that actually cash flows because raw land doesn't cash flow, obviously. Um, then let's talk about cash flow. What is cash flow? 
Yeah, so cash flow is taking your net operating income, your income minus your expenses, and then any of your below the line expense, which is usually your debt service, maybe reserve some of that kind of stuff. And whatever's left over is your operating cash flow from that asset. And cash flow is king. Not, not cash, cash flow is king. And when people have been doing this for 30, 40, 50 years, hmm. uh, it's snowball. It snowballs. And 24 hours a day while they're sleeping, they're getting paid. And it's growing over long periods of time. And you look at businesses in the United States, you know, nine out of 10 businesses fail here in this country. Usually within the first few years, it's seven out of 10. Sure. And the reason why, they don't make profitability, they don't make cash flow. Right, uh, that's what's so or, awesome. Or again, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but maybe they do show a profit, but they don't have cash flow. Exactly, that they, they may the show well. a profit, but they're, yeah, they're reinvesting whatever it is. So, for commercial real estate, you can actually buy a successful business day one. It's already cash flowing. That's one of our guiding principles. You know, oftentimes we've done investments over the years that you put money in a deal with the hope that it's going to appreciate over time. Sure. But you're not getting depreciation, you're not getting cash flow. And so it's a, it's kind of a hope that things go right. Um, almost an interest-free interest loan at that point. For you and I, we want to buy an asset that's paying us cash flow immediately. Every single month we're getting, you know, an annualized return of four or five percent, and then that goes to seven and then nine and then ten and thirty, forty years from now. Um, that's how you make uh, incredible so, money. So you estate. get appreciation on one side. So the building, the business is appreciating in value over time and you're getting cash flow as you speak. So you're pulling two levers. Sometimes when you invest in a private equity deal, most of them, if not all of them, there's no cash flow coming through to the investors. You're theoretically, hypothetically, hopefully, you know, in a good case, getting appreciation over that asset that you, you bought a good company, Yeah. but you're not getting all those levers. Um, the other thing too is, can you talk about how much we're paying per door on that Amarillo project. Is that? Yeah. And, that, and that's why I was talking about the basis, what your basis is, what you're paying that, for. Yeah. It. I think it's, it's good to explain how you buy appreciation out of the gate and how you buy cash flow out of the gate. Yeah. So, so that particular asset, this is our second asset in that market from the same seller, uh, in the $47,000 range per, per door. door. Okay. Yeah. If you think about way below replacement costs, exactly. Replacement costs, you might be a hundred thousand a door, whatever it is. So it's significantly below replacement costs. It doesn't need, uh, insane amounts of CapEx. We're going to do some CapEx to upgrade units and, and generate returns, but it's already uh, Fannie eligible, over 85% occupied, um, and it's got a ton of upside. So not only are we buying it at a seven cap going in, um, but it's got 20% of the units vacant. It's got no rent increases that have been done. It's got higher delinquency. All of those things. So tons of ups, levers that can be Tons of levers. So, out of the gate. so when you talk about appreciation, and we saw this in COVID, everybody and their mom and their dog and their sister got into real estate. It was like everybody wanted to get in. Sure. And really, you just rode the wave. You bought it and interest rates were zero and people were getting cash flow. So that was great. But they weren't getting appreciation because everybody was overpaying on deals. Like we didn't buy a lot of deals during that period because everybody was paying threes and four caps for stuff that wasn't worth threes yeah, and four caps. Down. And so what happens is over a period of time of five years, you're barely getting, you may have enjoyed cash flow, but your appreciation, you're barely getting back to that point. You and I, we're getting cash flow out of the gate on deals that we're doing, but we're also buying equity on the front end. So we know five years from now, 
that can double in value pretty easily uh, because our basis is so low and competitors in that market are already trading for 50, 70, 100% higher you know, per door. So paying 47,000, what, what do those doors trade for in that MSA today? Yeah, for that MSA, you're looking at like 75K a door. Okay. And that's today. 75K, could it go as high as 90K per door in that MSA? It could. Obviously, it, it all depends on your net operating income, how well you're running it. Because again, that's what investors are going to look for. Now, that's another mistake that we try to avoid is buying an incredibly efficient, well-operating asset yeah. where all the juice has been squoze yeah. out. That's, that's you how can't, you, I, I say this all the time, but you can't turn the four seasons into five seasons. Exactly. So that's why you want to buy deferred maintenance, dilapidated assets, uh, rent rolls that haven't been increased. Just you, there's, there's opportunity and a little bit of chaos. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's what an entrepreneur is. It's bridging the gap between opportunity and what, it, what, between the current state and what the opportunity is and bridging those gaps. You don't, you don't want to buy something that's pristine because there's just not a lot to, to, to create on the value add side. So we love the value add. We love rolling up our sleeves and, and being, being blue collar. Well, and you, and you see that in commercial real estate, some people that do buy at the top of the market and they buy something that they've already raised the rents 50, 70% and it's a hundred percent occupied and they pass through the utilities, the 95% recapture you actually have a high likelihood of actually going backwards. Sure. You know what I mean? It's, it's being ran so well. And so we don't look for those assets. And, and sometimes brokers, they market those and say it's a seven or an eight cap. But then you look at the, the expense ratio and it's like a 20%. It's totally unrealistic. Okay, beautiful. So we talked depreciation. We talked cash flow. Now let's talk uh, depreciation. How does depreciation work in real estate? So we're buying real property, but that real property has buildings, it has utilities. And so what we do is on like an apartment complex or a mobile home park or self-storage, we do a cost segregation analysis. A third party comes in and they bifurcate everything that is sitting on that real property. Everything above the, dirt, the land. Everything above. Um, and sometimes, you know, wires and, and plumbing and different things below. But everything besides your dirt, they're going to okay. put it on a schedule and say over time that we can depreciate that on a five year, seven year, 10 year, 27 and a half, whatever it is. And we take uh, the opportunity to do first year bonus depreciation on a large portion of that. Okay. And how does that help with your taxable income? What are, what are it, some levers that can be pulled there for investors? Yeah, it offsets your taxable income. So we've, we've seen, you know, just in the last 12 to 24 months, investments that we've done where we've taken 100% or even more than 100% uh, write-off year one. And then we can go in and offset other income that we're making. Um, it's, it's different for everybody. Yeah, right? every single individual has a different tax situation. So people need to consult with their tax professional, obviously, to be able to get that done. But it's... It's a true asset. What's really cool is you get to tell the market, hey, this is an appreciating asset, and you get to tell the IRS this is actually a depreciating asset. And the tax code, it's an incentive program. The United States government actually wants us in the space of real estate. I mean, the government does a lot of things, we know that, but they, they're not gonna go into multifamily and start developing assets, at least not at a mass scale like us private operators do. So they say, hey, you guys do this and we're going to give you guys some benefits. And since you're doing what we want you to do via our incentive program, we're going to actually help you with your taxes. You're doing exactly what we, you, we want you to do. Same thing happens with oil and gas and, and other asset classes. You know, the government wants us to be in these activities. 
So, but this is a real lever and I call it phantom cash flow. It's not necessarily cash flow you see hitting your bank account and coming in this way, but it's actually cash flow that you get to keep because either you pay the IRS or you keep it for yourself to keep um, expanding your own personal portfolio. So don't sleep on depreciation. It's a massive lever. And I don't know of any other better asset class than multifamily real estate to be able to take advantage of the tax code. It's yeah. there for a reason. It's there to be utilized. So make sure that you understand those levers. Okay, so cash flow, appreciation, depreciation. Let's talk about durable revenue. What is durable revenue? Durable revenue is, you know, it's kind of an inelastic versus an elastic situation. It's how much of a demand and a need there is for that particular product. So with commercial real estate uh, in class C, class B, workforce housing. And by the way, we're talking strictly residential. We're not talking retail. We're not talking flex warehouse or anything like that. Right now we're talking dwelling, like where people, where people live. Yeah. I mean, it's housing. Everybody yeah. needs a, a house to live in, a, a place No to matter live. how AIS we get, no matter how much we live in virtual reality, human beings are going to need shelter. It's Maslow's hierarchy of need number one. Exactly. So that's your durable re revenue. People need a place to live. And oftentimes what you see in recessions that we have been through is the class B, the class C, the mobile home parks, people move down in a cycle. So yeah, when you go to, through, to conserve, exactly. So when you go through a recession, oftentimes there's even an increased demand for that type of workforce housing. It does well in good times, bad times, ugly times. It, it, there's always going to be a huge demand for uh, renters in that space. Yeah. So, I mean, you were in the thick of it during 07, 08, 09. What, what did you see as far as the recessionary period was concerned? Did you see a lot of concessions and rent rollbacks or did you see the playbook continue to increase in rents due to the demand? Yeah. The playbook continued to increase. Obviously there was uh, foreclosures and a lot of people that lost their home, their site built home. They ended up looking for apartments to, to rent. They looked for mobile homes to buy or to rent and they're coming down to us. Okay. That's right. And since you have so much demand and limited supply, you have to continuously increase your rents to be able to satisfy those market demands. Yeah. Like it is what it is. And that's and that's what durable revenue is. It's it's supply and demand. Yeah. Right. And the other thing with durable revenue too is, you know this, I own a lot of restaurants and I love my restaurant business, but it's not durable revenue. I mean, it can be if you provide such a beautiful product and service, but every single day, what's happening? You're opening up your restaurant doors and saying, please come in and consume my product. Like every day you're, you're basically starting at zero In multifamily. You're not starting at zero. Those tenants are in schools. They're in, they're in, they're at jobs in the community. They're in teams. They're in organizations that uh, satisfy their social needs, et cetera. They're, they're sticky and they're signing one year, two year, long-term leases. They're there. It's durable. Exactly. So you don't have to like go chase them down. Sometimes you have to, you know, go collect rents by knocking on doors and stuff. But for the most part, people want to pay their rents because they're enjoying their, their living there. It's a durable revenue mechanism. That's just, that just comes by being a part of multifamily real estate. Okay. So durable revenue, cash flow, appreciation, depreciation. Um, let, and, and we, we hit on recession too. So you can protect yourself against inflation by tagging your greenbacks into an asset that goes up in value over time. So your greenbacks, your dollars are chasing or progressing with that inflation and surpassing it. So you're protecting your dollars. And then in a recession, you're actually protecting your dollars too, because you have an asset that's highly desirable that people want and need regardless of, you know, whatever the market is going through. 
Like, like we said earlier, people need a place to live. Yep. Now let's talk about indemnification or insurance. How does insurance work with multifamily? Let's say there's a fire, there's a big storm or something happens. And, and I think a lot of people ask, hey, how durable are these mobile homes? Yeah. Yeah. So mobile homes are actually built to HUD standard now after 1976. So they're as durable as a single family home, as an apartment complex. You can continue to upgrade them and renovate them over time. And they can last 50, 60, 70 years. And isn't it crazy? But and depending on the market, they actually go up in value over time due to supply and demand. Exactly. Right? Yeah. What have you what what are some crazy appreciation figures and numbers that you've seen with some of these mobile homes? Well, we've been through different markets, right? And after 08, 09, you saw values in all types of housing go way down. But once you saw that recovery come back because there was only a limited supply of mobile home park pads in certain MSAs, uh, they filled up. And so when there was just a vacant pad there, there was so much demand, it rose the, the pricing and the cost of those homes uh, exponentially. I, I've seen 1970s homes just a few years back selling for $150,000. And obviously they come in and they spend 10 grand, 15 grand and renovate. Yeah, but what would be good. the basis in the 70s for a home like that? 10 grand. I mean, that, yeah, that home insane. and that same home in the recession probably would have sold for 10 grand. Yeah. So it's, it's all supply and demand and market. Driven. But what's crazy is your cash flow stayed pretty much intact, but maybe your appreciation took a dip because of the market and nobody was trading on the sales front, but people were trading on the rental front. Yeah. So your cash flow was protected, yep. but maybe you weren't a seller because values were down because you didn't have as many buyers in the market so crazy how you can protect yourself yeah and it's all about these. the pad in that situation it's crazy right and once you're once you're full once you're stabilized you're literally charging for the concrete space yeah and your maintenance is little to none exactly i mean so many cool things so i know you and i we invest in three major asset classes it's storage units manufactured housing communities and multifamily apartments um why why do you feel we've chosen to stay within those three um, asset classes and not gone super wide with the different um, real estate um, asset classes that are out there. Yeah, to each their own. But for us, again, going back to risk adjusted returns, it's it's all about hitting singles and doubles. You know, we have invested in venture capital and private equity and we've taken moonshots. We've done a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, but now we are more focused on buying stuff that we know we're not going to lose money, like period. We're not going to lose our basis. We're not going to lose our money. And over long periods of time, we'll continue to grow and compound and make a lot of money. And so that's why we buy in those three asset classes. We feel like, um, in some cases they're counter cyclical, you know, they do better in downturns. Sure. We also feel like they're really good in, in great economies as well. Okay. Now let's talk leverage. So we talked about our ratios. We usually like keeping 50% equity, 50% debt. Now let's talk about the magic of refinances recaps. How does a refinance work? Yeah. I remember when, you know, we did our first, the first, uh, mobile home park we ever bought. You know, we bought it for a super low price. We came in, put a bunch of homes and filled it up and stabilized it. And then we went to the bank and we refied it. And I remember, you know, getting a huge check from the refi, more than our original basis. And then I talked to my CPA and my accountant and he said, you're not going to owe any taxes on that. And I was used to, you know, getting, selling gain. a business or whatever, you get a capital gain. And he said, no, you don't owe anything. 
that's that's the 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 miracle and that's the the reward of of taking on debt in that situation is it's it's a non-taxable event and so that's what happens when you go to a lender if you what you do is you buy an asset over you know periods of time you increase the noi which increases the value then you go back to either the same lender or a different lender you say okay we've increased our noi by 50 percent, so now it's worth let's call it 50 percent more and now the lender says okay we'll underwrite and we'll do a new loan on the property so now you do a cash out refi in some cases get all your basis back or half your basis or whatever more, it is or more, than more many times more and you don't pay any taxes on it which is beautiful so you mentioned debt. Now you can subscribe to the Dave Ramsey philosophy, which I think is helpful for a lot of folks. And it's more obviously on the consumer end, or you can subscribe to the Robert Kiyosaki mindset, which is business debt is good debt. So may, you, you just made a statement that it's, you know, it's the, the magic of right debt. So is, is in this case, it's a loaded question, but is debt good? And why yeah. is debt good? And why should people seek out debt if they know what they're doing with that debt? From a consumer standpoint, I, I back the Dave Ramsey philosophy. I try not to have a lot of debt under my personal name and my personal balance sheet. I think that's a fundamental principle sure. of, of conservatism that's really important. Yeah, so and, and, that's, I, and I know you. I think the only thing, two things that you'd allow yourself to go into debt for is your personal home and maybe a car. But I know all your cars are paid off anyway. That's right. So from a consumer standpoint, you don't want debt. It's expensive. Credit card debt, you're paying 17, 20%. It's extremely expensive. It's not efficient. It's not sure. effective. But on business, business debt is incredibly beneficial. Everyone, including the largest institutions, use debt. Um, many of them are sitting on billions of dollars. Apple being one of them. They it, borrow against their own personal balance, it, against their own company balance sheet. Exactly. So they have so much dry powder, they could buy everything with cash but they choose to use debt as a lever to enhance their returns. Uh, again, it's a fine balance. You don't want to be over levered, but as long as you use leverage in a conservative way, it makes or breaks your returns. Okay. So now let's talk about that. So quite often when you're doing an investment, you want to know when do I get my basis out? How do I cash flow? How do I get my basis out? How am I appreciating? So there's, there's a, and I say this all the time, you don't want to get into these investments. And I'm sorry, I'm going to throw these NFT guys under the bus. But it was this wide entrance, like massive entrance. Come on in. This is so cool. This is so great. But then what's your exit? Super small. Very difficult to exit. Okay. What I love about real estate is you have a, you have a good entrance, but you have a wide exit. There's so many ways to exit on real estate. You can trade day in and day out. You can put a for sale sign up for sell sign out, maybe sell it in two weeks, a month, who knows. But the exit that's beautiful is you recap it. Yep. So you're exiting, meaning I get my basis back, but I still hold on to my cash flow. I still hold on to my asset. I still hold on to my appreciation and hold on. I just got my invested dollars out from what I invested in. So now it's back in my pocket and I got it tax free, by the way. It's a massive bonus. So I had a really good exit there but I still continue to collect. And what can I do now with that basis that I took? I can go run the playbook again if I want to. Yep. So I can put a million, two million bucks in a deal, get that out within, call it three, five years. Five years is probably more conservative. And then I can run the playbook over and over again. So that's why these fix and flippers, I'm like, why are you fixing and flipping and getting out? All you're doing is chasing the next deal. Yeah. And then your cogs keep going up. You're going to get caught some moment. Just keep the asset. Hold on to it for the long term so you can have 
the golden goose laying your golden eggs for you. Exactly. Do you, I mean, do you agree, obviously you agree with that notion, but maybe ex expand on that. Yeah, no, I agree a hundred percent. I, I personally have been through scenarios where we've bought properties and over time, you know, we've recapped them and, you know, different capital stacks and different things. But when you go to sell it, you got to true that up and balance all that yeah, out. Yeah, and depreciation if you recapture. Exactly. And, all those and so if you don't do it. a 1031 exchange, oftentimes you're looking at, you know, giving a lot of your money to the government. So, and, yeah. So I've talked to a lot of um, operators and their number one regret, guess what it is? Selling. Selling. They all say, I shouldn't have sold. Yeah. I shouldn't have sold. I shouldn't have sold. And listen, there may be a point in time where you do want to sell some of your assets, which is fine, but you just mentioned 1031. Maybe explain what 1031 is. Yeah, simply put, the, the way that the tax code is written, if you have a like-kind real estate deal, transaction, you've bought it, you've owned it, even if it's gone way up in value, so you've, you've increased your, your value, your basis over time. If you go and sell that, now you sold it for, let's call it a 3 or 4x return. Well, well, theoretically, now I got to go pay the government for all of that return that I got on that real estate transaction. Well, the government allows you, instead of paying the taxes, to roll it forward. And essentially what you do is you take that, you sell it, then you identify another like-kind property in a certain amount of time, and then you have to go and buy it in a certain amount of time. And the it needs to be apples to apples. So the purchase price and the equity amount needs to match, and oftentimes the debt. Okay. And then how often do we do 1031s at studio? We do them often. We have investors that come to us that say, Hey, I am selling a property and I need to obviously reinvest it and do a 1031. And, and I think you would agree with me, but those are some of our funnest deals. Yeah. They're yep. like elegant. They're, they're, they're just fun. Um, what's cool too, is you're working with investors that have already seen the benefits of real estate and they want to stay in the asset class. So I personally love it when Investors call us and they say, hey, I have a 1031. I get giddy yeah. every time I get those phone calls. Well, for you and I, it's it's really nice too because it's not a, a syndication, which is generally what we do where we you know go out and we invite all of our friends and family to join us on investment. And that may take 30, 40, 50 investors. And there's a lot of administrative and logistical sure. work doing that versus a 1031 is usually one investor. Hey, yeah. I just sold this. Find me a property for 5 million bucks of equity and we're good. Okay. I love that. And I know, I know that with 1031s, a lot of it is deal sourcing. And it's in this game, it's all about deal sourcing. And I say this all the time. Bennett, we don't find deals. And I'll, I'll attribute this to you. You're, you. Somehow you know how to boil the ocean and find deals. But we don't find deals. I tell everybody we make deals. Because then they'll look at something like our, our Amarillo asset, which if you look on CoStar, you're going to see it trading for like 90000 bucks a door, like in today's market. We're picking up that thing for forty-seven thousand bucks a door. So how do we how do we deal source and how do you make these deals happen? Like, what's the method behind that madness? Yeah, I, I mean, we've been working on building a reputation for many many years, eighteen years of building a reputation, and I attribute it to three things: it's speed, it's communication, it's ex execution. So first thing, it's speed. What a lot of people uh, do is they sit on their hands. A lot of people are look. everybody's looking for good deals. Everybody's looking for deals. And I have people hitting me up all the time that say, Bennett, how are you finding deals? I heard you just knocked down another deal. How are you finding good deals? It's such a difficult market. I have no deal flow. And then when you look at that person's systems and their behaviors and what they do, you realize that they don't pick up their phone when brokers call them. 
they don't reply to emails for three or four days. They want to set up a meeting for next week. And the thing I, I tell all of my partners and investors is the very best deals, the better the deal, the faster it moves. Period. End of story. The better the deal, the faster it moves. And so if a deal hits the market, um, and, and I'm not saying on the market, but just a broker is lightly marketing it or taking it to a select few groups, uh, my whole goal is to keep that deal off the market and to move fast. And the reason why is because if it's on market and it goes to a marketing process, it becomes an auction. And all of your value and your equity is stripped out of that process. So in commercial real estate, they do a call for offers. So everybody throws in their hat. They don't give you the asking price from the seller. They say, hey, everybody just come with your number. And then pretty soon they take the last five or their top seven bidders and they say, okay, now if you move up your purchase price a little bit and if you... <laughs> put up more earnest money or go hard or reduce your time on DD and they make everybody more competitive and then they do another round. And by the time the, the person wins it, all the equity is stripped out of the deal. So we keep the deal off market through moving fast. And so immediately as I see that deal, I'm doing a two minute underwrite. What's the location like? How's the basis, the price per unit? What's the cap rate? What are the upside? All that kind of stuff. Is it a growing population? And within a couple of minutes, I know if that's a deal that we really, really, really want to pursue. I'm calling that broker. I'm saying, hey, man uh, or, or gal, we were very interested in that particular deal. Tell me what the whisper price is. What does the seller need? And if I feel like it's a deal that we can pursue, we're modeling it. We're doing an LOI within like 24, 48 hours. Interesting. That's moving fast. And then we're communicating speed, communication, then the execution part. One thing that people do to destroy their reputation is they get over their skis. They get new into real estate and they assume that I can just use the seller's expenses and the seller's income and their seller's insurance and taxes. And they lob over some unrealistic offer and then they're under contract and they fumble. And they do it you know, time and time and time again. I hear about that. They try to do crazy retrades and that destroys your reputation. That broker now has blackballed you, even though they haven't told you. They're not taking you the next deal because it's not worth it to them. So we make sure that we put in really accurate models, insurance, taxes. So, that okay, stuff. so hold on. So at the beginning, you're underwriting quickly to know if you want to chase that deal or not chase that deal. Yeah. Once and then you lob over the LOI, et cetera. Now you're in true DD. So now talk about true due diligence and the method behind that madness as far as like being ultra conservative with the underwriting. Yeah. So obviously we're ultra conservative with the underwriting. That way there's not going to be big retrades based on our LOI unless there's surprises, right? And so the things that we look for and we've had mandates from the largest institutions in the world and we've learned through mistakes over the years and we've built checklists that are very, very comprehensive. And some of those things are, we do a bank reconciliation. You know, you and I were talking about accrual and how people deal with their delinquency or their bad debt. They hide it on the balance sheet and they don't deal with it on their income statement. Well, we're going to pull 18 months or two years of bank statements. We want to see the inflows actually match materially to what they represented. Mm. And if it doesn't, then we're going to retrade. We're going to go in and we're going to look at the utilities. You know, I've told stories before where we've gotten into deals and they've fudged uh, their utility uh, um, reads. And so that could Haven't be, you found like little devices on meters and stuff? Oh yeah. Yeah. We got one particular deal, you know, the seller was, was, I mean, this is a, a 20 cap, 20 cap rate, right? Too good to be true. He represented to us that it was 20 cap and we go in there and there was a locked 
office below the office and the meter for the city was in there and he put a magnet on the meter to slow the oh meter gosh. and so he's paying like two grand a month or whatever for water and sewer for the whole complex well after you took the meter off it literally went to like forty thousand dollars it went from a 20 cap to a negative 20 cap so those types of things are in our DD process and are absolutely essential. Yeah. So talk more through. about the DD process. Like do you climb on the roof, do you open the doors? Do you look at every single rent roll? Like how, how meticulous is it? It's very meticulous. We have people that will go through every single tenant's lease and they'll match up the lease, the rent amount when it expires, the deposit, make sure all of that is, is, uh, is accurate. Then we look at, you know, we, we invite contractors to come with us. So we have a team, you know, there may be five of us that are on site with our property management team and they'll bring contractors, a plumber, an electrician, a pool guy, a roofer, uh, an asphalt or a concrete person. And they'll come and they'll look at all of the infrastructure and they'll give us bids. These roofs haven't been re replaced for 20 years. So you're looking at having to replace these roofs in the next several years. We have to account for that on the purchase. We can't just assume that we can kick the can down the road. So that becomes part of our capital. So that's plan. why it's so imperative to buy at scale and buy in the same market because you have your trusted list of contractors that are real with you and tell you exactly what it's going to look like. So when you're underwriting, you know exactly what you're buying. Exactly. Couldn't, couldn't, couldn't have said and that myself. And then you even fly the drone, look at... Look at everything from the air. You climb yep. on the roof. Look at the boilers. Kick the plates. Yep. The other cool thing that I like about the underwriting is you go morning, noon, noonish, and then nighttime, and then early morning to see all the different trends and what the cars look like. See the activity, the noise, and lighting. Street lighting is a big deal. And crime. We'll go meet with the city. We'll go meet with the police department. And they'll tell you, they'll say, we have tons of problems. There's violations and there's this issue and that issue. And so, and, and then talking with the manager, most sellers, in, uh, institutions and sophisticated sellers don't want you to talk to the onsite staff. So we make a point, no matter what, we have to have access. We have to walk the property with them and casually ask them questions. And over that walk, they're going to tell me everything. everything, all the good, the bad, and the ugly. Well, they know you're the new boss too. Exactly. If everything pencils. So we'll walk the property and we'll walk up to tenants and we'll say, Hey, we're just looking at this property. Tell us if there's any issues. What are your complaints? What does the property need? And they'll tell us, you know, I've, I've heard everything from, uh, the iron levels in the water are so high. The laundry comes out bright orange every time we wash our clothes. Um, so the whole property now needs a, a water filter, which is a material difference. We've seen, uh, you know, you go in the summertime and you don't think anything of drainage, but then you ask the tenants, they say, once there's a, a rainstorm, this whole area of the property floods or my unit floods or whatever it is. So really, really important to talk to several residents while you're on site too. And then really quick, because this has a lot to do with the underwriting and everything. So the team comes in with the contractors you know, do everything. And then the agency comes in, Freddie or Fanny. So talk to us about that. And I think elaborate on what it takes to get on their platform as an operator. Yeah. So with Fanny and Freddie, I mean, that's one nice thing, especially if you're new in the industry, if you can get a Fanny or Freddie loan, they're going to make sure that you're pulling, you know, property condition assessments. They're going to force you to do that, to see the, the, any deferred maintenance. They're going to force you to do a phase one environmental report to see if there's a plume under the ground or it was ever used for a shooting range or laundry mat or airport or gas station. 
Um, they're they're going to look through uh, your appraisal, all that kind of stuff. They're going to catch those things for you, so which is nice. You know, it's a, so it's a do, second set of eyes. Yeah, so you do your iteration, and they they do theirs. So you're exactly. tag teaming them. Yeah, and, and to get on their platform, obviously, you know, when when the debt market's really bullish, it's much easier if you have an institutional quality asset to maybe get on their platform. But they really underwrite operators. They're looking for operators that have a minimum of two years of experience. They've successfully done the business plan. They have multiple assets under management. We we actually, going back to that Amarillo deal, the first one we did, uh, we, we were competing against a guy that came in. He offered a lot more than us. Uh, shorter time frame, went under contract, and Fannie wouldn't loan to him. Um, he had a balance sheet of like $50 million. But Fannie said, right now, operations is everything and we're not lending to to non-operators even though you've got a, a balance sheet and you got a lot of money sorry we can't give you a loan so they they really care about the operator okay and then we'll i'll end with this question but let's say somebody wants to get started in real estate what are some of the ways in which they can get started yeah so i mean there's obviously crexy is a platform you can hop on and you can start looking for deals today there is LoopNet or CoStar. You can hop on today and you can start looking for deals. And there's many different asset classes. You can put the size and the amount that you want to spend. Um, so there's platforms out there. And then there's other platforms, you know, Sperling's best places that you can use to look at, you know, the MSA, the Metropolitan Statistical Area, what the demographics are, what the population growth or contraction is, what the, the average rental rate is, what the average vacancy is, what the job outlook is, the unemployment, all that kind of stuff. So my recommendation, uh, you know, if you're brand new and you don't want to lose money would be to find somebody who ha has experience doing it. You know, the best people that get into real estate usually partner with other experienced that's investors what first. That's what you did. That's what I did. And then over time, you know, they may and branch out on their own. That's what I did. Exactly. You know, the first time I met you, I'm like, hey, here's a check. I want you to buy a mobile home park for me. Yeah. And I want you to manage it because I don't understand it nearly as well as you do. Did really well. A few months later, I'm like, here's another check. Let's go buy another one and so forth and so on. And today we're sitting on thousands and thousands of doors between our mobile home parks and or apartment complexes. I think that's brilliant advice. Everybody wants to be an expert, but everybody that's now an expert was at some point a beginner. Yeah. And you have to have that feeling of awkwardness as you're beginning. You have to be okay with being outside of your comfort zone, but you got to get started. But I highly recommend finding a coach or teaming up with a team that's doing it at a really high level so you can avoid all those all those issues that you're going to more than likely avoid like have to face if you're doing it solely on your own go well, go find experts in your in your corner there's no again i'll say this there's no i in in real estate it takes a team that's right and a lot of the opportunities that we're buying today are from people that wanted to get into real estate with zero experience they hired a manager out of state that manager doesn't show up to work they steal whatever it is and now they're in a bad way. Yeah, so because you, you get the it. whole dream of passive income, passive income. But I mean, when when people um, put money in art, it's truly passive because we're, we're dealing with all this stuff. But if you're buying something, you're, you're third party managing it even, that third party manager is still calling you for all the issues. I was talking to one of my buddies about it yesterday. He's like, yeah, I have my own doors, but I'm still, I, I just bought myself a job. Yeah. Like I have my, my direct job that I deal with. And then I just found another job. Sure. I have a third party manager, but they're calling me 
with the toilets, with the HVAC, with with vacancy, with needing more uh, marketing material, so forth and so on. So just truly understand what the lay of the land is and then make those proper decisions to piggyback off of what you just gave as far as your advice is concerned. Brother, this has been amazing. I think we should probably do a part two, maybe a part three of this thing. Um, so much information, so many key nuggets. I really do um, appreciate you and, and love you. And I appreciate you being a fantastic partner. And thanks for being on this show. I know that there's a ton of value add and just thanks, thanks for always bringing it. Much love hey, to you. Much love to you. All right, live life by design.